All right. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, will you grab it? Open to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to take a very brief time to set something up, and then we're going to tell a story. You guys cool with that? You guys like story time? Fantastic. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, last week, and I'm going to fly through some stuff here, so if you just need to hold on tight. Um, last week, we talked about murdering people. Anybody here for that? We talked about, <laughs> it was a good time. Um, we talked about murder. We talked about anger. Uh, we talked about this idea that you can't separate your relationship with God, and we had a box over here that talked about that, with all the other relationships in your life that actually God has this holistic view on our lives. That in a religious sense, check, I haven't murdered. When you're probably pretty glad that your pastor hasn't murdered anybody. But in a gospel sense, I'm a murderer. I've, I've had anger. I've had thoughts towards people. And so we talk about this idea of approaching these, this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount from two directions. One, from a religious perspective. Yeah, we, you've heard it said that this is the way you should live. But I tell you, Jesus says, this is really what it's all about. Matthew chapter 5 Verse 20 says this, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We talked about how that is a difficult passage for us. But what Jesus is really saying there is that everything has to do with right relationships. That you, uh, your right, righteousness means that your whole life, a whole community life with all relationships, with God, yes, and with others, with yourself and the rest of creation, well-ordered, full of shalom that the Bible calls peace, shalom. All things flourishing how they're supposed to live. That's righteousness and righteous people contribute to that kind of life and the righteous uh, the righteous are willing to actually disadvantage themselves okay in order to make that happen they're they're willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage other people to advantage advantage the community and so the Pharisees saw it just about law-keeping, but Jesus is telling them that there's a different relationship at work here. It's not just about you and God, but it's about you and others as well. That's the whole part of this. And righteous people work towards righteousness all over. And so we're not covering every word of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this week in some of our restorations groups, we're going to be covering a chunk that we've skipped. As you will notice, we get to uh, Matthew 5, verse 38 today. So today, here's the plan. I'm, we're just going to talk some big ideas, and then we're going to tell a story. And the story is going to correlate with a lot of the things that you're going to hear from Scripture today. Okay? So, verse 38, ch Matthew chapter 5, it says this. You have heard it said that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn to them the other cheek also. A little brief background here. What this is saying is there's an Old Testament understanding of equal for equal. And people say, well, that sounds like retribution. And really what this command was was something absolutely critical for the time. See, in the ancient Near East, um, if someone, you know, killed uh, something of yours or stole something of yours, um, the natural human response is to what? Maybe, but more. But take it to the next level. If you steal or kill a sheep of mine, I'm going to steal or kill a bull of yours. I mean, it would just compound back and forth. And in tribal life and in tribal warfare and family clan stuff, um, things just escalated. And so the law became, let's not escalate. Let's just return. And I know for us Western American Christians, that sounds kind of intense. But what Jesus is saying now is this, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, I've just return for what uh, was taken. But I tell you, do not resist. Jesus is throwing out a new ethic, a deeper, more gospel-centered ethic that says, let them do more. And there's so much here that we can't unpack, and I got to continue on. But uh, verse 40, and it says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In Jesus's day and age, you had a coat that was also used for shelter, for sleeping at night. And you had a, a shirt underneath, and then you had, well, your undies. Now, if you were taken to court, it was, it was actually a shameful thing to take someone's coat because your coat was basically what you needed to survive overnight. But you could theoretically take someone's shirt and they would still have their coat just to get the last, pull the last bit out of them that they owed you. You weren't probably going to use their shirt. You just wanted to feel the debt that they, they owed you. So if anybody took your shirt sued you and took your shirt, give him your coat as well. You know what that did? That made you pretty exposed. And what it did was it actually put shame on the person who took your coat. It actually exposed their greed. So Jesus is saying things here that are pretty like, for us, they're like, really? Coats and shirts? Pretty, pretty contextual stuff here that's pretty intense. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This idea is that a Roman soldier walking through town could take his pack, basically make you carry it for a mile. It was Roman law. Doesn't matter if you were a man, woman, child. A Roman soldier had the ability to conscript you into his service for a mile. And Jesus said, if someone asks you to go one, go a second. If you wanted to be religious about it, I guess you could then take the pack off after a mile and spit on it. But Jesus doesn't say, he talks about this gospel heart of going a mile and then going a second. Verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now this idea is this, uh, there was poverty everywhere. There was need everywhere. And, and it was overwhelming. And it was inconvenient. 
And it was difficult to see and to watch. And it was easy to ignore it. And Jesus is saying, don't avoid the need. Don't avoid the inconvenience. Engage somebody who's in need. Now, these are four little micro stories that Jesus tells. And I guess there's three different ways we could, we could interpret those. One is literally in the sense of we could uh, make them hyper-literal uh, rules that we need to now follow. But it gets kind of problematic, right? Because if you approach any of these four things that Jesus says in a very religious way, uh, kind of like the hundred, uh, like walking a mile with the Roman soldier's pack, if you approach that in a religious way, you could say, yeah, I've done it. I've walked two miles with the pack. And you throw it down and spit on it. Or uh, you could do the whole idea for the, uh, the slap, you know, the eye for the eye thing. And, and let, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to them your other one. And then there's a whole custom thing there that I can't get into. But he's not, if we approach this literally, we could say, yeah, I let him hit me again. And then it's uh, open season. Then I could go after him, you know, right? Like I followed the law, right? So there's one way to uh, approach this and that's super hyper literally and kind of a rule thing. Another way, and this is what we do as American Christians, we explain these away as not very pragmatic. We just do. We just look at these things and go, man, that's, that's really not today. That's not how things work around here. First of all, coats and shirts, come on. We, we, we have really yet to take any of these things really seriously. What these really are, are examples of a gospel-shaped heart. These are examples of how disciples of Jesus could and should live in the time between Jesus' coming and Jesus' second coming, right? This is how we live in the now, okay, that the kingdom of God is here, but it's not quite totally fully realized. This is how we live. This is how we become salt. This is how we become light. This is how we do righteousness, okay? And so there's... Uh, Theology, I love how Jesus doesn't let the theology stay up here, stay up cerebral and, and just these concepts. He actually drags these ideas into everyday life, coming and going, uh, walking along the road, you know, all these things. This is everyday life type stuff. And, and what if Jesus is actually onto something? What if he's actually showing us a new way to live? I mean, look at verse 43, and we're, we're almost done with the teaching part. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, this is going beyond pacifism. See, pacifists probably can still hate their enemies. Jesus is saying, pray for your enemies. Like, that's how it changes your heart, he says. He says that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And it's kind of like this idea of, man, I really like this guy. He's uh, meeting somebody for the first time. He, he kind of dresses like me. He, he likes, you know, sports like I do. And, 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 and like, like, how messed up is that? You, you actually like yourself in the other person. 
And it's easy to do that, right? It's easy to gravitate towards people who are like you, that think like you and, and maybe vote like you and maybe do parent like you or whatever they do. It's easy to be around those type people. But Jesus says, that's not love. That's not the gospel. How different are you? See, we think of Jesus as this holy good teacher, and he was. But think about how brilliant Jesus was. Think about how ahead of his time Jesus was. Think about how ahead of our time Jesus is. Think about this upside down way of living. See, what if Jesus was onto something? Like really onto something of how we see people and how we see relationships. See, there's a couple people throughout history that took Jesus very seriously. One of them was Gandhi. Now, you might say, well, Gandhi wasn't a Christian. Yeah, he was a Hindu. But he took Jesus' words very seriously. In fact, he fashioned his whole um, teaching and, and way of getting India out from under British rule on the Sermon on the Mount. The other person was Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King fashioned his whole civil rights movement. Everything he did, it kind of came from the church. At that time, it came from the church. It came from the Sermon on the Mount. What if there's another way to live? What what about this inbreaking of the kingdom? Uh, What does this look like? What are the glimpses of this that it looks like? In verse 48, as we finish, this, this um, this is a really difficult verse. It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what word do you get hung up on? Perfect, right? Let me just tell you the word they got hung up on. The word they got hung up on was the words heavenly Father. As Jesus says those words, and we'll get into that here in a second, the people got hung up on those words. Perfect. We think there's, there's this perfection thing that Jesus is wanting, that, that we need to be absolutely what we call perfect. But don't be scared off by that word. For starters, he's rephrasing Leviticus 19.1. Be holy as God is holy. But this word is a Greek word, teleoi. It's where we get the word teleology, which is this idea of purpose and intent, that there is a purpose and intent for things. Now, what Jesus is saying is basically this, live in the shape that God intended. It's this idea that you would use in in the Greek that for children growing up into adulthood, growing up in maturity, like your heavenly father is mature, right? And so, and, and like this word I said, getting hung up on as your heavenly father, the Jewish people would have got hung up on that. Nobody called God that. Nobody called God that. Jesus imagines a family. Jesus imagines a family, God is the father, sons and daughters being adopted. That's where this all comes from. That's how God views you. While we were sinners, 
while we had made God an enemy, God does something revolutionary and dies for us. And because of that, we are adopted and we get to live in this new reality. And so this morning, as I pass this off, we decided it would be really, really good to not just teach words and talk about things and, and really, you know, that way of scripture, but what would it look like to unpack a few of these phrases with a story? So Dan, will you come up? Um, Dan uh, Zizvorka is our associate. He's, he's basically our pastor of mission practice. And one of the things, he told a story not too long ago, um, and we, he told a little bit of the story, right, right. about Janice. Yeah. And we're gonna, he's going to tell the whole story, well, more of the story about Janice. And so listen for some of the phrases that you've just heard out of the scripture, okay? Go for it. Shouldn't have let Randy go, or Ryan go first. Like, oh, all the time. <laughs> Good job. Uh, will you pray with me? Father, thank you for creating us for you and creating me for you. Holy Spirit, remind me of our partnership. Jesus, brother and friend, to you be all the glory. In your name, amen. When... Uh, my family and I lived in San Diego. We were part of a small Christian community we called Ronald Court. It was just named after the street that we lived on. And uh, I was uh, sort of pastoring this small community, but I had to have a job on the side in order to support myself while doing uh, what I thought was the important work. Uh, so I got a job uh, that I've mentioned before of picking up shopping carts for uh, Big Bear supermarkets. And in certain neighborhoods where people do not have vehicles, uh, shopping carts serve a purpose of taking their groceries home, and then they just leave them there. And so I was the guy that drove around every, everywhere finding these shopping carts and bringing them back to the, to the store. So that's the setting for this story. So uh, chapter one, I, I'm going to say chapter one, and we're going to have chapters to this story. When I was doing this job, I was going through some, some really uh, poor neighborhoods, some ghettos, basically. Every, and certain stores, I would be there every day picking up to 50 shopping carts a day. So I would be up and down the streets and alleys of certain sections of town every single day. And in some of these neighborhoods, there was a, a large population of people who were addicted to crack. And I would be seeing these people on a daily basis and relating to them. And one of the people that I met uh, was Janice, although you find out that's not the name I knew her by at first. So, uh, but uh, this is Janice. And uh, one day, uh, I had met her a few times. Uh, she was a crack addict and also a prostitute. So she saw me as uh, money, <laughs> you know. So she says, I talked to her this last week. She said, from the first, 
time she saw the shopping cart truck, she ran up to uh, solicit me so she could get some money for her drugs. And that's kind of how we first met. And, uh, of course, I said no. <laughs> and I said, I think I said, oh, I don't have any money, or if I did have money, I might have given it to her. But I quickly learned that in this job, dealing with so many people on the street, I would not be able to carry much money or any money because everybody wants money. So, so one day, though, one day I was driving and I saw her crumpled up on the side of the road. And I got out and I didn't know her by name yet. And I went over to her and she was completely wasted. She was just, could hardly stand. And I wanted to, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to help her off the street onto the least on the sidewalk. And in the middle of it, I said, what is your name? And she was slurring her words so much that she, what I heard her say was, my name was Slam. I thought she was saying Slam. And I, and I said, what? And she, and she said, my name is Slam. And it, I thought it was a derogatory term that she was putting on herself for what she was doing with her life. So I got angry. <laughs> I said, that's not your name. That's, that's not your name. You're not Slam. And uh, I said, what is your name? And she said, uh, my name is Linda. Um, until you can trust someone on the street, you have a multitude of names that you use for, your, for yourself, and you don't let people, you don't let people in. So, um, but what she was, it, this is a really good uh, point to where show how the Holy Spirit works through lots of things, even mistakes. She wasn't saying slam. She was saying slim. Her street name was Slim, and I had simply misunderstood her. And yet it made me angry and it made me ask her her name, which actually was good for her because I was concerned about who she was. Chapter 2. After I got to know her more, uh, she would stop me. Uh, whenever she saw me, she would always stop the truck. And, of course, she would still try to solicit me or ask whatever I could give her. And I would say, I don't have any money to give you. And I would have my lunch with me in the truck. And she says, well, what do you have for lunch today? And uh, I would open the lunch and end up, uh, she would end up perusing the lunch and picking out a few things that she wanted. I said, well, I'll share the lunch with you. So she would always, if you know me, this, is, this was really hard because she would usually pick out the sweet things. And I like the sweet things, <laughs> you know. But drug addicts like sweet things. Uh, and so she would take my desserts. Uh, and we, I would do this with her. Uh, I was in this job for two and a half years. And over a time of about a year and a half, I would be sharing my lunch two or three times a week with Janet, with Linda. Because she hadn't been uh, trusted me enough to tell me her name yet. Chapter 3. One day I was driving and she was standing on the side of the road with a friend and I was in my truck with all the shopping carts in back and she said, I want you to give us a ride. I'm like, no, no, this is a company truck. I can't do this. I want, I want you to, and she kept saying, I want you to give, give us a ride. And, and I told this story when, when we talked about the Holy Spirit, but this is where it fits into the bigger story. And so she finally, she talked me into it. So she climbed into the truck 
sitting next to me and her friend sitting there, and she said, take us down the street a few blocks. And I knew they were going to the crack house down there. And so I started driving. Well, I hadn't yet talked to her much about who I was in Jesus and who I was as a person following Jesus. And uh, I think the Holy Spirit knew that too and wanted me to start sharing with Janice who I was. But it happened like this. Uh, Janice was sitting next to me and I was driving. There's no kids here today, are there? Not that it matters too much, but uh, <laughs> maybe it does. And so all of a sudden Janice uh, starts uh, telling me I need to come around and see her and she reaches over and grabs me right between the legs and I'm driving. And, I, and for me it was a moment of, this is a moment of I've got to choose one path or the other. So I'm driving, I slam on the brakes, I grab her hand and throw it or push it back and, I, and then all of a sudden the words just pour, I, I'm like, I'm... I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I have a wife. I love my wife. I, you know, I just started going on and on talking about who I was in Jesus. And then uh, I could have simply turned and, and um, let's see. Yeah, I could have simply turned and, and, and gotten down on her for what she had done. But instead, my heart flooded with love for her. And I said to her, I don't know how you survive or even how you sleep at night with knowing and feeling what people have done to you. The thing, kind of things that, that you've been through, how do you even survive? Because she had been on the street for 15 years as a crack addict, and she had grown up with a mother who was a heroin addict. She has a horrendous life. And then she got mad because she's like, well... If, if you have another job for me, if you find me a job, I'll do another job instead of being a prostitute. And I said, okay, I'm going to find you another job. And we were just yelling back and forth as I'm driving them down this couple of blocks. I never did find her a job. I tried really hard. And uh, I would go home every night to my family and say, we've got to pray for Janice so she can have a job. And I would tell my community, we've got to pray and try to find a job for this woman. Chapter 4, eventually uh, Janice got so bad, and she, eventually she told me her name. She said, you know, you can stop calling me Linda. My name is Janice. And so I started calling her Janice, and we started praying. Stop praying for Linda. We started praying for Janice. And uh, eventually she got so bad that she got so skinny and so worn out that she was just reaching the pit of despair or the bottom of the rung. So one day I was driving and I saw her and she just looked um, like a walking dead person. And uh, she stopped the truck and she leaned into the window on the passenger side and she said, can I come live with you? And apparently she said she had asked a lot of people that in those days. <laughs> but I said to her, well, let me go home and ask my wife and ask my community. She's like, really? <laughs> and I said, yes. So, so I went home, and this is where we get to chapter 5. 
So I drove, uh, I went home and I told my, I told Kelly, you know, this woman's just at her lowest part of her life and we need to do something to help you. Want, are you willing to do this? And Kelly says, yeah, yeah, we've been praying for her for over a year and a half. Now we want to meet her and hopefully we can serve her. And my kids were up for it too, my two daughters. So we called a community meeting that night and we went to the community meeting and I said, you know, this woman we've been praying for all this time, she wants to come and live with us. And, and what do you think? And so we started talking about it as a community. And a, a, a lot of the, it was, I was saying, well, this is our chance to follow Jesus. And a lot of the community were saying, no, we're not ready for this. We can't have a crack addict living on our cul-de-sac with all our kids. We, we don't know what's going to happen. Our drug's going to start coming here. There was so much fear. And the, the conversation actually was going negatively and it was going toward, no, we're not going to do this. This is in the evening. Our little cul-de-sac was tucked back in this. You wouldn't know it from the, the regular street that goes by that it's a cul-de-sac. Actually, the opening to the cul-de-sac looks like a driveway. And then you go through the driveway, and all of a sudden you realize there's these duplexes back in there. So no one comes back there, only the mailman. So we're sitting there, we're having this discussion, things are not going well, and then we hear this knock on the door. There we go, a little sound effect. And uh, everybody's like, who's knocking on the door? Boy, maybe it's the babysitter watching the kids while we have our meeting. And we opened the door, and standing there was a woman with some boxes of candy, African-American woman, who actually looked very much like Janice. And uh, she was standing there, and uh, she said, I'm selling candy for a rehab. I'm, I'm an ex-crack addict, and I'm raising money for my rehabilitation. And I said, I said, well, could you come in? We would like to ask you a few questions. about." <laughs> and sure enough, she came in, and everybody just started pelting her with questions. And after, uh, after about half an hour of answering questions, uh, she took control of the meeting. It was very strange. This, was, this is very much, uh, I still believe to this day this was an angel of God because after a half hour, she said, you know what we need to do? She said, you need to, yes, you need to go find her, but what we need to do is get on our knees right now and pray for her and pray for us. And so this woman who's selling candy comes in, takes control of the meeting. We're all sitting on our knees praying to God with her, and she's praying out to God for, for Janice. And then uh, we finish praying. We buy some candy bars from her, and she gets her stuff together, and she leaves. And everybody looks around, and no one says anything, and we just kind of say, and so I say, well, is, are, is Janice going to move in with us? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> guess she is. <laughs> so went out and it took a couple of weeks to actually locate Janice again, but eventually we went out and found her and brought her home. Chapter 5. Now, chapter 6. When Janice came to live with us, she, she herself says it was her lowest, lowest point. And I said, why did you trust me to come live with us? And 
she said, Dan, you're the only person in my life that, that ever showed me genuine concern. And that surprised me. Even today, I talked with her last week, and I, I just surprised that someone would have a life where no one shows them genuine concern. Uh, but she came to live with us. Uh, this is uh, a weird picture, but uh, that's actually my mom right there, uh, the little woman in the middle next to Janice. That's a whole other story, but uh, I may tell it someday, so... You can get a picture. But Janice came to live with us. One of the things that we had been preparing for this by following Jesus, we had been content with what we have. We made very little money. We had a two-bedroom house. We had been practicing a simple lifestyle for many years. And so we were ready. We had time. We weren't busy. And Janice came to live with us. And we gave her our room, Kelly and I's room. And, and Kelly's sitting up closer up front so I can bounce off or any, uh, am I missing anything yet? Okay. And, uh, and we gave her our room and we slept with our kids in, in their room and for several, several months while Janice was living with us. The first thing Janice did was curl up at the end of our bed and fall asleep. She wasn't even wanting to get inside the bed. She just curled up like a cat or something. And Kelly went in and Pete to after a while, she's still sleeping all day, and we, she peeked in on her, and she, she got Janice to slide up and get under the covers. And then Janice slept for a whole nother day. She slept for like two, over two days when she got there first. Uh, Janice stayed with us, and the neat thing about this story is this is where kind of my part stopped, and the Holy Spirit started using Kelly and our daughters and the community to care for Janice. And I kind of stepped out of the picture in, in a lot of ways, was kind of handed off to them. And Kelly would uh, basically was mothering Janice. Janice is uh, two, uh, two years older than us, but we would go to the grocery store and, and, she, and she ate a lot. Because once she stopped sleeping, she started eating. <laughs> and she ate and she ate and she ate and she ate. And so we go to the grocery store a lot, and we'd be in the grocery store, and she'd be yelling out from uh, two aisles over, Mom, Dad, can I get this? You know, and she, and it was just the strangest sight to have her. But she still calls us her, her parents. And so she stayed with us a few, uh, uh, maybe three, four months, and then she got bored, and which often happens with addicts. And she got bored, and she... She said, on Christmas Day, she said, I'm going for a walk. And she went for a walk, and she didn't come back. And we knew she was bored. She wanted to see her old friends, and we didn't think it was a good idea. And she went back to her way of life, back to the streets. After a, a short time, she actually came back, and we tried it again, and we even wrote up a recovery plan for her. We were going to do it right this time. And she came back, and she, she was pregnant. And uh, so she had a baby inside, and we were concerned for her and the baby. And then she left again and went back on the streets. And we were really concerned because she went back and do, was doing crack while she was pregnant. Uh, well, then our prayer went from, uh, we had prayed for her every night for, for so many years. 
Our prayer went from, thank you, God, be with Janice, to thank you, God, put Janice in prison, put Janice in jail for the baby's sake. And so we started praying for Janice to be picked up by the cops and put in jail. And sure enough, that's what happened. I don't know if it was, had to do with our prayer, but she was put in prison in, uh, in Riverside. We lived in San Diego. She was put in prison in Riverside. One, uh, then one day, we got a phone call. Uh, had Janice already had the baby, or was it before then? So right before she was going to have her baby, we got a phone call from the prison saying, do you know a woman named Patricia Gibbs? Kelly's like, no, I don't know any Patricia Gibbs. Oh, she said you might know her by the name Janice. <laughs> oh, yeah, we know her. You know, her prison name was Patricia Gibbs. And uh, so we got a call from the, the prison saying, will you take her baby when it's born? And we talked about it with our kids and prayed, and we said, yes, we're going to do this. Real quickly, one of the traditions we had at Christmas when our kids were little, my two daughters, would we would take one of their babies. I would sneak one of their babies on uh, the night before uh, Christmas Eve day out of their room, strip it down naked, and then I would hide it out in the bushes or the yard somewhere. And when it came Christmas Eve, we would be reading the passage of Scripture with candles, and I would say, do you hear crying? I hear crying. Do you hear that? And at first, when they were really little, they're like, no, I don't hear. I said, I hear a baby crying. And we would wander around outside in the dark with candles until we found the, the naked little doll uh, representing for us Jesus. And we would take the naked little doll in and put it under the tree. And the girls would dress it and care for it. And so that's kind of a tradition and a practice that we had. And so when we were talking about, should we take Devon? That was, I think, very influential to say, yeah, well, of course. Yeah, Dad, of course we are to take Devon. So a few weeks later, Janice was taken from the prison to the hospital, had the baby. We got a call. The baby's born. You, you could come up and see the baby. So we drove up there. Uh, Devon had to stay in intensive care for several weeks. We drove up and back quite often to be with him, to give him human touch, to care for him, and then eventually we got to take him home. Well, Devon went home with us. Am I still on chapter 6? Ah, chapter 7. Go ahead. Yeah. So Devon went home with us. That's my daughter Hannah feeding. Well, we called him Devon. Uh, Janice calls him Davon, but we started calling him Devon because we didn't know how to pronounce his name, so we still do. Uh, but he stayed with us uh, for three months or, or, or maybe uh, around there. And then Janice, uh, actually we went every week with him up to Riverside to go into the prison to visit Janice with Devon. And it was quite an experience for all of us to be uh, patted down and my, my girls patted down every time you go in and take everything out of your pockets and, and you're patted from head to toe. And, the whole going into door slamming and all of that. Uh, okay. Am I missing anything, Kel? Am I taking too much time, Ryan? All right. Is this okay, Randy? <laughs> all right. Uh, chapter 8. 
I'm just going to throw in a t- statistic. Uh, four point, the United States has 4.4% of the world's population, and we have 22% of the world's population of prisoners in our country. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Not sure what that means, but that must mean something for us. As it says in the book of Hebrews, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. So we went up to visit Janice regularly. After Janice got out of prison, she uh, came back, st- came back, lived with us in Devon, but she only stayed uh, a week or two, and then she took Devon and left. It was horrendous. It was hard. It was, it was gut-wrenching. We had raised this child for three months. We had become very close with Devon, and he was gone. And we, not, we didn't know where. And uh, I was still doing the shopping cart job, and I would actually see him every once in a while on the street with somebody else, not Janice. Finally, uh, at one point, we got a call at 4 in the morning, and someone saying, you know, Janice dropped Devon over here four days ago, and she hasn't been back. She said to call your number if, uh, if, if, you, if, if we didn't know what to do. And we had talked about this and prayed about this, Kelly and I, in the community, and we decided that we needed CPS to be involved with this because we were not doing such a great... We were being torn up. And so Kelly said, you know, call CPS, call Child Protective Services because... We're not going to take Devon. He needs to be in a better situation where Janice just can't come and get him at, at will. She was very angry about that, but um, it, to, to, at, nowadays she says that was what absolutely needed to happen in her situation. Chapter, where am I? Chapter 9. We left... San Diego, I went down, we went down to Yucatan, Mexico. I taught in a seminary for two years. Uh, we lost track of Janice. If the story had ended there for us, it would have been a story that had some good and a lot of heartache, which a lot of our stories do end that way. Uh, this is one of the good stories that I'm sharing with you today. After we moved back to San Diego, it's when I became a bicycle courier, and you know that I was like, a double for a drug dealer and all of that with that job. But one of the things that happened when I was riding, that didn't sound right, did it? Somebody, anyway, I looked just like someone who, anyway, ask me about it later. So I was riding the bi- a bicycle around downtown San Diego, and one day I'm, I delivered a package, and I was walking my bike away from a, a, one of the government buildings, and I heard this voice, Dan, Dan. And I turn around, and it's Janice. And I said, Janice. And, uh, and this white bike courier, this black Janice, came running across, and we gave each other this huge hug right in front of the doors down, downtown San Diego. And I, I'm like, what? What have you been doing? What are, where have you been? And then the good news started pouring out. That Janice, when she went to prison and lost Devon, Devon went to her sister in Texas, who is a Christian also, and who has been praying for Janice for many years. It wasn't just us. It was also her family praying for her. And then Janice had gotten into a rehabilitation program that was a year-long, a very intensive program. 
that we visited after we met her. And she went from there to going to school, getting her GED, getting her associates, and she got a job with Napa Auto Parts and started becoming, uh, working for Napa Auto Parts. And the whole story, and she got involved in Narcotics Anonymous, and to this day, she uh, gives a retreats for Narcotics Anonymous, talks about her story, guides other addicts to freedom from their, from their addictions, leads them to God and to, and, and to prayer, and... Uh, there's a, a whole story of how fantastic things were. She eventually got Devon back when he was like seven or eight, and, and she worked 19 years at Napa as a manager. She got uh, all the way to her master's degree. I mean, this is a person whose life was, all her life was about crack, and then her life turned to be about a lot more things and about God. Chapter 10, and that's her, one of her graduations we went to that was the last one. And this is a picture, not nowadays, this is back a ways. We don't have a present day picture because Devon is like, how old Kelly? 25 years old. And uh, so the reason I'm uh, telling this story along with what Ryan was teaching is that the scriptures inspire us, we have an encounter with God, and the Holy Spirit works in our lives that way. But from there, the Holy Spirit works in other ways, like experimenting with doing the things that Jesus talks about. And then the Holy Spirit works by developing practices that we regularly do, like giving to everyone who asks or greeting those who are not like you. And then it moves from practices to habits. The Holy Spirit actually forms habits in us to bring the kingdom of God. And I think we don't think about the Holy Spirit that way. And then the Holy Spirit takes those habits and makes them part of our character. Kelly and I and our family and our community, we had practiced so many of these things of reaching out to people and having right relationships and being salt that we, these became parts of our character. Hospitality, we learned hospitality in Mexico. That became part of who we are. So we invite you into our home. We invite you into our lives. These became part of our character. And once it's part of your character, no matter what context you are in, in fact, you should be in lots of contexts, that's where the kingdom of God shows up. You've practiced, it become habitual for you, it's become part of who you are, and God shows up, the Holy Spirit does fantastic things. And this is a